Welcome to On the Other Side, where we talk crypto, culture, and society, and how crypto might shape society and change how real humans live their actual lives. Every week, we have on cool people from the crypto world to talk about what they're building and what the implications of that might be for real human beings. All right, I'm here with Shreyas from Llama. Llama is doing some super cool stuff when it comes to Dow Treasury management, but I am also super excited to chat about traffic jams in crypto. We'll get into what that actually means. Shreyas, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Chase. It's great to be on here and excited to chat about Llama and uh, crypto traffic jams. Do you want to give a little bit of background on you and, and how you got into crypto and also maybe a little bit about what you're doing at Llama? Sure. So I am the founder of Llama. What Llama does is kind of creating the building blocks for DAO treasury management, basically push the standards and frameworks for DAO treasuries forward, where anyone, including us, can plug into some basic products and contracts and tooling to push forward treasury strategies that make sense for DAOs and protocols. And we've been working with some of the top DAOs, Aave and Gitcoin and a few others on building out a treasury strategy. And the idea and the focus now is to think through the standards that can live across DAOs. And we have you know, a great team of people within Llama and we are you know, really focused on bringing that community-driven aspect to, you know, work with specific DAO communities and, and get really deep into the problems they're facing and then try to abstract those problems into what can be uh, templatized across DAOs. My specific intro to crypto was, well, the, the first time I heard about it was probably a while back, maybe 2011, when someone just told me about Silk Road and, and you could buy drugs with Bitcoin. But I didn't think much about, about it then. It probably took like several years since then. I think there was a class where we were trying to design an alternative currency. And I and this group of four others, we were designing this alternative to the US dollar. And we went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole then. And I think there were a bunch of things that I found especially interesting with these digital assets that didn't have any trusted institution. And I was this enthusiastic group member in, the, in that project. And we built this sort of productivity-based currency that was a little based on Bitcoin, but a little improvement. And that was probably the first real deep dive I did. And then maybe 2017, 2018, got deeper into Ethereum. But I never went full-time. And I was working at Duke University's endowment. And I was you know, one of the enthusiastic people at Duke trying to get Duke to get into crypto and led some of the crypto efforts there. But when it was getting closer to 2019, 2020, I have been itching for a while to do something entrepreneurial. And so I kind of made the plunge to just dive deeper into the DAO and crypto space. And I started off actually by responding to a forum post by Brian Flynn at, at Jam when he was looking to some, for someone to help with their treasury. And when I responded there, I then went down this rabbit hole of all the problems that, that people are facing with with treasury management. And it seemed like a lot of people I was asking questions to were asking me questions back. And it seemed like there was there was just like something I could contribute here. And yeah, that's how I, I dived in. I, I've been sort of on these different governance forums and, and a contributor with treasury related advice. And then that evolved into Llama, which is a group of people helping DAOs with treasury management and building products that actually push the space forward. Wow. You, so you've actually been thinking about crypto for 
quite a long time, even though you weren't necessarily working in it. It's been in the back of your mind or maybe not so back of your mind for a long time. Yeah, I would say the learning over the last six to nine months when I've been full-time in crypto has been way more than the learning for the few years where it's been like marinating in my head. But you're right that in probably 2017, I think I had an initial like attraction to the technology that there's something about decentralized open source protocols that are like these forkable things that you can live autonomously and this in- internet native way to to transfer value, like that was instantly attractive. And th- there was something about that plus the economic, human, organizational and, and political consequences of that, that I, I think intellectually, I, I found it interesting. But you know, to be honest, I really don't think I really went deep uh, until the last year or so. Like definitely at, at Duke, I was the crypto guy, but I would try to make these presentations and how MakerDAO works and trying to get people encouraged get getting into crypto. And some of the questions I would get were almost questioning the premise of it. And one thing I realized was I, I was very attracted to sort of leaving the questioning the premise part and, and like almost going with the fantasy of, hey, let's let's leave the initial question. Let's just think through how MakerDAO is actually working. And it's actually really cool uh, to think through this like stable coin you can create without having this central institution or, or some sort of centralized like pegging mechanism and so i'd say my learning over the recent past has been way more than before but it has been marinating in my mind for a while i've been thinking a lot recently about the benefits of being crypto native to me it feels like really immersing yourself so deeply into the space is different from being the crypto guy or the crypto person within groups And maybe it's this crypto native element. I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about that because it's totally a different experience. It's like putting on VR goggles. Like you see the world differently. 100%. I think it's almost like we're like in on this magic fantasy world and we know that magic exists and we know that Hogwarts exists and everyone else is kind of a muggle. And we're kind of being ideological about it. And, and, And I think what crypto native, in my view, is like... We're crypto native, crypto first, and a lot of things that we think about. Sometimes it, it actually is ridiculous, but it, it requires almost thinking of the the DAO NFT token and so many different things that there's an internet equivalent to probably in the 2000s where there were people just like actively thinking about everything you could bring on the internet. And I, I think that's similar to how I think about crypto is that most ideas that, that come through, like I, I am definitely thinking about the crypto context to that. And a lot of times it might be a stretch and almost might seem ideological that I'm doing it, but it's sort of just becomes a habit. And and like, it's also experiments, right? Like you're taking some premise and just going with it. And maybe a lot of these ideas fail, but it's only when you actually go with all these premises that you can experiment versus if you're not crypto native and you're skeptical about a bunch of premises um, and kill it too early before the idea is even grown into this toddler, you know, infant-sized baby. You're just killing things <laughs> too early and you don't know what, you don't know what the possibilities that crypto can enable, enable. Totally. So this is where we get into the traffic jam conversation. When I first published the podcast, Shreyas reached out and was like, hey, this is something that I think is really interesting. And actually, I originally wrote about this a little bit because this human side of Web3 is worth talking about. And I think, you know, you sort of have to be crypto native to talk about some of these things, at least in some capacity, which is interesting. But you said it was easy to predict the automobile in 1880 it was very difficult to predict the traffic jam. Do you want to unpack that a little bit and talk about your approach there and and how you're thinking about these traffic jams? 
Yeah, I think the invention of the technology is often actually the easier one to predict. And so in the late 1800s, people, given some of the advancements in the motor and some of these other elements of the automobile, like it was possible to probably predict that uh, there was going to be this thing that's an improvement over the horse. But I think what's hard to predict is how we actually feel about that technology. And, and the reason why that is because how we feel about it, that technology will only come after society is reoriented around it. And so the traffic jam arises only after the automobile is sufficiently permeated in all of society. And we have built roads and highways and traffic signals and parking garages and drive through restaurants and seat belts and we have traffic laws and we have all these things that it takes several decades for society to be re- reoriented around a, a, a technology and and only then like slowly the, the, does that affect how people uh, live and feel about it so if you ask someone especially pre-covid how they feel about their car a lot of people will just talk about oh they're like going to work and like the daily commute and it's annoying and they're stuck in traffic right you know that's not something henry ford would have envisioned he's thinking through this magic of this very that they can you know move quicker and has all these improvements of, of the existing transportation system like people get used to the tech technology advancement and you see this with the internet too right it's wild that we could send these packets of information instantly and just tweet out something and someone across the world is just like you know, looking at this thing and feeling something about it that's that's like wild but like it, how how people feel about it is when again so you have billions of users and and then you have interactions that go beyond the initial use case and then and you have maybe people think through there's like positives and negatives there's, there's like like i've felt like amazing sense of resonance through different social platforms and there's also this element of polarization and, and these extreme things that, that happen when, when you have democratization of access. So I, I feel there's a bunch of similar problems, especially people who are native to the technology, like the, the builders in the space are uniquely positioned to see this. It requires a particular lens to be open to this. But yeah, the, there's, there's the, definitely a few people that I've interacted with in, in crypto that can see this and, and talk about it. It's sometimes hard because especially if you're talking about a, a negative side to uh, certain technology, you, you don't want to be some type of doomsday. And I, I'm extremely optimistic. Different things with crypto um, and generally quite an optimistic person. But I feel it's almost like the builders in the space are uniquely positioned to talk about it, though they're not generally incentivized to bring some of these issues up because it feels like you're being a little doomsday-ish. Versus usually that's that's reserved for journalists to do or whatever. But typically journalists might not have as deep of an understanding of, of some of these problems as, as crypto people do. And, and actually, they don't need to be problems, to be fair. Like they could actually be just interesting consequences. Like this, the idea that, that in the US, like US is particularly interesting, like uh, where it feels like this whole society is architected around the car. Right? Like the car is actually affected architecture and urban design and urban planning like that is not an initial effect of the automobile that people would have predicted yeah that's something that i've been thinking a lot about i think there's this notion definitely that you don't want to be the debbie downer that's not good but at the same time what would the world have looked like if mark zuckerberg had openly talked about some of the challenges with facebook's monetization model from my own thinking about this it's sort of been like if we talk about these things, we can build with them in mind and we might not be able to completely eliminate all potential consequences, but maybe we can mitigate some of the negative ones. I'm curious if you think that is sort of the benefit of talking about them. I definitely want to get into some of the pieces of what those things are, but what is the argument for having these conversations and how can people in crypto 
constructively have them? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the reason to have it is one to prevent bad consequences. A lot of people in crypto, I would me included, like we're like missionaries, like we you know care deeply about the effect this is going to have on people, on society, on like pushing things forward. Right? This we're not like sort of working in abstract. And so, given those intentions, like it is important to to think through what are the potential like side effects of something that can seem. A, a quite a positive thing like they can actually be these negative side effects that that maybe we're fine with uh but yeah it, it's sort of worth just thinking through that's one the other reason to talk about it i think is also just it's interesting like it's like a creative exercise it's it's like science fiction sort of right and so there's <laughs> there's, there's something at least that's interesting to me about really like thinking through like stuff that doesn't exist yet like for society we architecture on crypto like that that's going to take a while it it typically takes a few decades for the technology to really, really seep through a society and like the you know public and sort of governance of systems and you know things like that and so that's going to take a while but but if if we're able to like just envision what those could be it's an interesting exercise i feel because at the end like what what matters to most people is is how they interact with the thing and so there might be something that in abstract sounds really cool but then if, if people's like daily feelings interact or experience with it makes them feel sad that's not an outcome that is desirable yeah totally i don't think we talk enough about how people feel in web3 like that's the entire existence of people and we don't even talk about it a lot it's crazy yeah so people do they they feel and they think and they probably just feel <laughs> um i mean thinking is pretty much feeling too so yeah um I want to hear, so you're talking about this idea of architecture even being built in a way that was impacted by something like automobiles. What do you think those things will be for Web3? I think you're seeing those layers built right now. Like one critical one is just the idea of uh, the tokenization of almost everything, of things that we didn't think could be tokenized or we uh, thought would be weird to be tokenized, a, a bunch of digital media and communities and creators and financial assets that primitive is quite powerful i think that's one of the primary themes of of crypto and and web3 if you see the you know web2 is as the democratization of of media would put web3 as the democratization of, of finance and like the you know the, the financialization of almost everything and that has really cool consequences for people in in society and you know creators that that didn't actually get sufficient value from things they were producing or like just individuals i mean i'm sitting in india contributing to decentralized governance protocols around the world like you, you could literally someone can just sit in that room and write some code and and deploy this smart contract on ethereum that uh, yeah people just you know put in like millions of dollars of ethereum or stable coins into and th- there's a lot of power to that you could be a, a teenager and, and deploy these contracts that actually hold a lot of like not just monetary value but also like power in the financial system that's not something that is enabled at all by the legacy infrastructure so that that i think is a is a big theme and the the degree to which that will affect way more parts of society than we think is both the, the big positive from from crypto as well as will have 
some interesting side effects. So w- with with the financialization of everything, like like I said, you have billion dollar creators and communities, and and you you have these people and builders who previously had to seek all this permission to to do things in the in the financial system, whether it's it's participate or build or iterate on. Like now they could just do it easily. That's a huge positive. The one of the negative consequences that I think again I don't see that. Now I see that like when I is like when we have the financialization of almost everything and and you sort of have this token attached to all sorts of stuff that we're seeing a little bit of that now but nothing close to I think what what we're gonna see when you have that you're gonna make some things transactional that are not and and that probably shouldn't be and so if you think of one of the problems with the GDP is that people say it doesn't include a lot of things like if a mother's taking care of a, of a child or if Fathers taking care of a child, like that's not included in GDP. But if the dad hires someone else to take care, that's that transaction is included in GDP. And so there's a lot of transactional things, right? Like most community relationships are quite non-transactional. That's what that's what make these make these relationships interesting. Now, just think if you actually have a transactional component to all sorts of those. I don't mean necessarily family. I don't think that stuff is going to be tokenized, hopefully. But just the idea of like social trust that emerges in communities. But, you know, let's say in, instead of people just doing things because they want to do things, they're doing things for like getting tipped in this token or they're doing things because they, they're having some like relationships because there's like an alpha opportunity in a particular token or market. I mean, the analogy I would give is like the, the person who like goes to Paris, not to see Paris, but to post the, the Instagram picture of, of the being next to the Eiffel Tower, right? Um, and so social media enables this beautiful thing of sharing your photos. But if you're just going to Paris not to enjoy it, but to, to share the photo, that, that that's something that like rots away at, at like being human in some way. And I think there's an analogy here, which is hard to articulate because we don't know what that is. But I feel that there's going to be something equivalent of going to Paris just for the picture, where you're just going to do certain things just for the token and, and the financial like reward from it, rather than just the joy of it or whatever, that I think will eat away at, at relationships and community a little bit. And so that, I think, is, is one aspect that I, I worry about a little bit. I don't see that as a big problem now, but I, I see it like further in the future, there's definitely going to be strange things that, that happen that it's going to be gradual to get there but but it's sort of like eat away at, at i think relationships unless we really are conscious of it and build around it yeah that reminds me of when i had brian flynn on the show he was talking about this decoupling of financial aspects and like human aspects of things and i think he had an optimistic view on that which is interesting as someone who had a social token with jam but really i do think that money supercharges everything with a lot of dopamine and even in some of danny zuckerman's twitter thread about introducing incentives into these communities he talked a little bit about how social media has become performative and it feels like this is a similar analogy where yeah maybe it's not it's not performing, but it's doing something exclusively for money. And I think one of the interesting consequences is not just everything becoming transactional, but also that when you do introduce monetary incentives, there are things that will happen that are also just not what you expect. So one of the examples was like an Israeli preschool that introduced a fee to try to get parents to stop picking their kids up late. And actually more people did it because it was just like, oh, I just have to pay this much money. That's fine. So it's interesting because it's like, not only will things become more transactional potentially, but also by adding some sort of monetary value to everything, we might get some really strange, unexpected things that happen, which will be interesting. Do you think that we'll be able to decouple those things? Do you think that there's a world in which we, we will 
potentially not do that? Or, or do you think it's sort of inevitable? And it's just a matter of trying to not make it, you know, terrible for people? Yeah, I think what's preventable is like the degree to which that happens. And it's also a matter of getting used to the the technology and the new primitive. I'm optimistic that people will get used to it and like society will figure out the, the ways that it's being misused, just like what happened with social media too. And and so I'm optimistic about the the like eventual thing. I just think there'll be a, maybe a, a mid period where it's it, it, like things will just get weird. And, and another another one that comes to mind actually is is I call them monetary filter bubbles based on your tokens owned and your on-chain transaction history. You're going to live in a very different world than someone else who's maybe your neighbor. And, and so you're going to have access to certain like, opportunities and to certain communities and get invited to certain things based on your like financial transactions as well as like your your contributions on chain and that is is generally very good because it, it sort of brings this meritocracy to large parts of the world where where so far it's, it's been really driven by social filter bubbles that, that's based on your social graph and your content consumption and and so monetary filter bubbles i think really help developing countries and like people from all sorts of other places that don't have that sort of social filter bubble edge but also one of the negatives from that is we could live in really wildly different worlds that we haven't like fully gotten used to yet is of course like you know you have that in the real world you, you and your neighbor could, could of course have really different opportunities or like you and your close friend could be in different socioeconomic uh, segments ba- based on things you're doing i, I just don't think it, it, it's to this degree there, there could be like based on your monetary filter bubble like you could just get become like you know multi-millionaire overnight ba- based on certain airdrops or whatever and, and someone else just doesn't or like you you just get invited to these these xyz sort of specific DAO type communities that open doors to all sorts of other things that like people you interact with at the, at the socially online or like in real life just haven't had access to. That is something that really hasn't happened yet because so far even crypto right now is really driven by social graphs, which that's why I said it's, it's meritocratic to, to bring things on chain and, and for, for things to be more um, driven by on-chain history, but we're just not like used to that yet. And this is, again, something that, that's hard to like nail down exactly what that world is and like what that looks like. But my guess is based on a bunch of things that we that we built on on-chain reputation, like you, you will have big divergences in the access to opportunity and like more financial capital and things like that. That's a really interesting question because it does feel like it moves closer towards a meritocracy, but also... You know, if those things all require capital, which I don't think they will longer term, but it does feel like a lot of those opportunities today, what we're seeing require capital, whether it's I saw an NFT drop that was gated based on assets that you had in your wallet, which was an interesting way to do it because if you're choosing only people who have crypto punks and all of the other sort of like really expensive nfts then you sort of end up in like the same world where the rich get richer at the same time yeah you you sort of take down some of the barriers to entry and at least make it more transparent which i don't know it feels like an interesting balance between these like two worlds where we're trying to avoid the rich getting richer while also taking down barriers to entry for other people yeah, yeah, the, I should probably put my meritocracy thing in like quotes because it's definitely, it's not some like objective meritocracy. It's it's just more that it's transparent how the system is playing out. And and, and so there definitely can be situations where if you're an early holder of a, 
of a punk, you just have all this access to, to things that because like other DAOs are set up to to give airdrops to punk holders because punk holders are tastemakers or all, all these other things that that uh, just because you were at the right place at the right time, like you just had this. I actually had this instant where I I, I, I was just uh, on, on Twitter and Kevin Owaki from Gitcoin posted about Gitcoin launching SAX, which is this ERC20 token that represented like limited edition, I guess, collectibles from, from Gitcoin. And I was just at the right Twitter con at the right time. And I think I was the first person to, to buy sacks i just i just bought a bunch of them and uh, yeah and I, I don't know what the long-term consequences of that are like there was some like financial reward i had from that but this is like the spot of this on-chain history that if, if you're an owner of something like that i don't know about sacks particularly but like stuff like that is going to have consequences on your like sort of airdrops you get and the reputation you have and like the opportunities you get and the jobs you get and the people you can meet and so that is is quite different from the way the like world works now and it will take some getting used to uh also even let's just assume even if there is a real meritocracy like people may not be necessarily like happy with it i don't think people generally like people say they love meritocracy if they, <laughs> if they like come out on top. It's interesting if, if you somehow like think that you don't have a choice in the matter and, and actually you can do much like it was just uh, fate or something. Or you might actually live a happier life. One example of this I see in corporate cultures where if someone is getting promoted who's older, let's say 10 years older than you, they're not doing well. That They actually are a bad employee, a bad manager and, and they're bad in all these different ways for whatever reason they're using some connections or whatever they get ahead people might be upset but not that upset because he's sort of older like it doesn't matter whatever but let's just say someone who's younger than you is doing really well and, and sort of quote-unquote in the meritocratic sense is killing it actually he's doing better than you if that person gets promoted over you you're not going to be happy you, you it could be like a meritocracy but you're not going to be happy you in fact will accept this older person who is doing worse getting promoted, but you're not going to accept this younger person sort of doing doing well getting promoted. And I, I think the reason is because you had the choice in the matter. You don't have a choice in the age thing. He's older, you don't know, what can you do? But then if you think through someone younger getting promoted, like you're like, oh, you could have actually done a better job and, and you know, or, or you could have had better abilities and gotten the benefits. And, and so people, you know, say they like meritocracy unless they face the negative consequences of it so i i mean i'm a fan of, of, of meritocracy and like democratizing access i think it's just that it, you know the way people feel about it can need not be positive like because it, it, it might it might accentuate the, the degree to which there's, there's these differences in uh, opportunities people get based on ways they contribute to protocols or something yeah, I think the transparency element of everything is going to be really interesting here too. When you bring a lot of transparency to something and try to democratize opportunity in some ways, I think there will definitely be some interesting consequences that, yeah, it, I'm, I'm very curious to see how it changes how people think about other people. Like, I think that's going to be incredibly interesting to watch evolve. Yeah, the you know, one interesting part of the transparency bit that I've been looking into is this idea of showmanship in DAOs. If you're a contributor in a DAO and you have to actually show your work because the DAO requires certain transparency to get paid and you've got to show to others like what you're doing, it can almost have these political slash like almost social media type popularity type consequences to work, right? Where work can typically be simpler like in corporate structures 
there's definitely politics. There's a sense structure, like you, you know what your competition is and you have an immediate manager that you're getting reviews from or whatever. But just imagine if you were to like actually on a weekly or monthly basis, like tell everyone in the corporation w- w- what you're doing and like somehow maybe lobby a few people to vouch for your work or you know, do things like that. That I-, I think these are all preventable, by the way, like working very hard at Lama and talking to people about how to prevent this. I'm, I'm just saying that I've seen this in, in DAOs and, and I think you want to nip that in the bud soon. Uh, we really like this idea of, of useful transparency and fluid contribution and collaboration. You, you want to really optimize for the person actually like doing the work and getting rewarded and getting ownership in, in that DAO easily rather than the loudest person or the person with, with the most like political influence getting things through or even a feeling among an average like, contributor that they have to like really not just do the work, but also like hustle through the politics of the DAO to get paid. It's not as lot of DAOs that, that like handle this well and problem doesn't arise, but it, it's definitely something that will happen as DAOs scale. Like if you have hundreds of people working, like unless you have a good comp uh, system that, you know, actually needs to be built right now. Coordinate is like a good V1 of this. You need to build like uh, a useful system where I think the way payroll gets done scales across hundreds of people but yeah that is another one i think that you know could be one of these like traffic jams where it seems like that was really cool transparency is very cool but then how people actually feel about working in it is like hey i have to actually i have to hustle my way through showing all the work i've done and sort of nudge a few people to to vouch for me and do things like that that i have spoken a few people about it's quite a big problem they face yeah, I think this idea of showmanship and DAOs is super interesting. And honestly, there are also interesting elements here. I will just say as a side note of different groups, especially like women, not necessarily being as yeah. socialized to be as pushy about like showing their work. So I think there are interesting elements there. I am super curious from, you know, the like llama perspective, seeing this play out. How do you think measuring these types of things, especially around comp? is going to to work. I've seen like index co-op does more of the impact that you create instead of just like how much time you're spending on things. Um, So I've seen like a couple different things there in terms of how comp is sort of worked out. But I'm really curious from Llama's perspective, what do you think is working right now? And how do you think that does scale? I know that's a bigger question. There's a lot of, there's probably different answers, but I'm curious how you're thinking about that. Yeah, I don't have a great answer to this. Like this is something that's high priority that I'm focusing on. And I'm actually speaking to people about and thinking a lot about this. I haven't found many existing models that really are good, but they, they're not like great, especially in terms of thinking through, continuing to scale the number of people I think for, for now, Lama, we have a quite a fluid contribution and collaboration structure. People at Lama are, are, are great. There's like sort of some trust involved. And so I don't see these problems emerge yet. I'm, I'm more like predicting like sort of future issues. But for now, we we keep it quite simple where like it's sort of pr- project based and based on the work put in and, and assigning a, a rate for the hours worked. I'm also not a fan of Jenny, the, the hours worked thing. I feel that doesn't scale and it's, it's just a weird thing to optimize for. And so this is very much like an open question. Like just like, I think you could pay like you know, full-time people a normal compensation with, with vesting, but like with all the, the other types of contributors, you you don't want to have a recurring payment necessarily that stifles either the DAO or the member. Uh, you don't 
necessarily want to do the Oswalk thing because who knows what's the what the Oswalk are like. Also, the impact of, of the work can be quite different. You also don't want to like just have one or two people like approve all these contributor payments because that means that person has, the contributors have to make sure that, that person knows what they're doing and that person might not have expertise on everything, right? Especially if it's fifty people, a hundred people, and, and you also don't want to do something through governance every time because that means that the again brings up this showmanship bit that people have to not just do the work but they have to sort of prove to the whole DAO they're doing the work so my answer is that i haven't figured this out and, and i think the main bottleneck is is i think even just a process level thing like like who is actually determining things like how they're yeah like how they're being allocated like coordinate is a great mechanism where you have these like teams set up and uh, you can have this fixed budget like top down but then these individual teams have these points that they allocate to each member in the team and and you generate this contribution graph and that gets reflected in uh, rewards for each each person. But yeah, there's improvements on that just because like it still requires showing this work business. I don't have great answers. So if if someone wants to, you know, has, has thoughts on, on comp, just let me know. Yeah, this is definitely something I'm watching evolve. How interesting. I'm very excited to see what ends up happening. Maybe there will be a standard even for types of work that people do essentially contribute across DAOs. I don't know. It's going to yeah. be very interesting to, to watch it evolve. A lot of things to think about. Before we wrap up, I want to try a new segment. So I, full disclosure, completely stole this idea from Alicia on the Crypto Native podcast, which is really good. She had an interview with Jackson Dame and they talked about this. So I want to try it out. Basically, the idea is what's in your wallet. So kind of like there are videos of what's in your bag, like what's in your purse. I want to do what's in your wallet. So my question to you is, what is your favorite asset can be an NFT, a token, whatever in your wallet? Um, I think mine would be Saks because I am a big fan of uh, Gitcoin and a big fan of these fixed supply tokens that are attached to these uh, collectibles that sort of represent i think the cultural significance of the the project of the protocol and socks by, by uniswap is a good example of this but like sax is like kind of a, a symbol of like the the cultural significance of gitcoin and it's really interesting because you can envision like a world in which gitcoin fails but sax lives because gitcoin let's say product becomes bad or like the economic significance of, of gtc just just dies because of various reasons let's just say but but sax can live because gitcoin actually has made quite a significant like cultural contribution to crypto and there's a bunch of projects that wouldn't exist without gitcoin grants like llama received the gitcoin grant and went through gitcoin kernel and there's great people and like thought leadership that's come out of quadratic funding and, and a bunch of things like that gitcoin has pushed and so yeah i, I find that interesting for for sax and also I, I was just i just ended up being again at the right twitter account at the right time and so like bought this asset so like it's a cool story too like there, there are a bunch of people just messaged me after that saying Oh, amazing buy. And I'm like, yeah, there wasn't that much great insight into this. It's like cool and fun. Like we, we did this thing where we were just like passing around uh, a sack. And, and I think at the end, like give, give one sack or something to public goods funding. Yeah, Gitcoin's really a, a, a really cool community. And so happy that I own this uh, ERC20 token and I can, can do things to meme value into existence a bit. That's super cool. I had never considered that even if the entity doesn't exist anymore, it's almost like 
this beautiful moment in time. That's like an ode to that. That's so cool. I love that. Now I might have to go buy some sacks. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's cheap. 100% for the emotional value alone. Well, Shreyas, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you? Where can they learn about Llama? Yeah, so you can just find me on Hello Shreyas on Twitter and also just learn more about Llama at Llama Community on Twitter. And yeah, just like DM me any questions you have. Always looking for ideas around DAO, treasury management and, and governance. Or like if you just want to jam about topics in, in crypto that we should be thinking about more. So yeah, great, great chatting, Chase. And very cool that you're doing this podcast. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. If you like what you heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast. I always forget to do this for podcasts I like, but it's actually super useful. Also, if anything resonated with you or if you want to continue the conversation, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Chaser Chapman. I absolutely love talking about these things. Thanks again for listening.